Oh God, we want Jesus to walk with us so that we might walk with Him. Teach us where He goes. We pray in His name. Amen. I'm embarrassed to tell you this. But there is a growing movement of Christians in this nation that is embracing the, the notion that Jesus was not poor. That in fact, He was wealthy. Quite wealthy. I couldn't believe my eyes over the holidays when I read this news release from CNN.com. Let me, re- let me read a line or two to you. Each Christmas, Christians tell stories about the poor baby Jesus born in a lowly manger because there was no room in the inn. But the Reverend C. Thomas Anderson, senior pastor of the Living Word Bible Church in Mesa, Arizona, 9,000 members, preaches a version of the Christmas story that says baby Jesus wasn't so poor after all. What do you mean? Anderson says that Jesus couldn't have been poor because he received lucrative gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh at birth. I mean, can you believe that? The wise men bring him gifts and he's, he's wealthy the rest of his life. Those gifts are a godsend for this poor refugee family who will have to flee to Egypt in order to escape the evil King Herod. And like the poor in Haiti, they will live off the gifts of others until they can recover. He's not through. Anderson notes that Jesus had to be wealthy because the Roman soldiers who crucified him gambled for his expensive undergarments. Give me a break. What kind of undergarments were those? Tommy Hilfiger, Ralph Lauren, Abercrunchy, and, well, Aber whoever. <laughs> well, you know where I don't shop. <laughs> Well, you got the point. (laughs) I'm going to tell you something. The only reason, the only, the only reason those pagan soldiers are gambling over that piece of cloth, it's seamless, by the way, is because it is the only possession the dying man has left to his name. And rather than split it in four, come on, guys, what do you say? It's not proof he had expensive undergarments. Anderson goes on. Why, even Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, lived and traveled in style, he says. Quoting him now, Mary and Joseph took a Cadillac to get to Bethlehem because the finest transportation of their day was a donkey, says Anderson. Do you know what? I checked it out. There's not a word of a donkey in the Gospels. So where did he get the idea? From a children's Christmas storybook. That's where. You're going to base the teaching that Jesus was wealthy because of a children's storybook? Give me a break. And then he says, well, look it. The poor ate their donkeys. Only the wealthy used them as transportation. I want to tell you something. There isn't a Jew who would be caught dead eating an unclean donkey, period. And yet the movement is sweeping the nation. I blush for the gross misinterpretation of Holy Scripture that would seek to turn our Savior into a wealthy, prosperity gospel proponent. This same Jesus, 
who when he's in a moment of heated cross-examination says, hey, he reaches in his pocket, whoa, I don't have a coin. Anybody here have a penny? And they flip him a coin. Who's, whose face is on it? Didn't even have a coin his own. This is the same Jesus who, when a prospective disciple is grilling him, has to quietly intone, you know what, I've got to tell you this, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the same Jesus. Don't you tell me. He was wealthy. He was the poorest of the poor. And with a solidarity with the poor, he marches onto the scene of time. How did this peace go? They, these movement people, they say that Jesus was never poor and neither should his followers be. Their claim is embedded in the doctrine known as the prosperity gospel, which holds that God rewards the faithful with financial prosperity and spiritual gifts. Tell that to Haiti. So they're not faithful. Is that it? Open your Bible with me, please. To the Messiah's call to arms. If you know yourself to be one, to respond to his call, you better read this very carefully before you sign up any further. Just two weeks ago, you and I were in that Messianic Psalm, Psalm 110, and we noted that at the end of time, the Messiah will be calling into his strategic army, especially the young. So I want the young to especially note now the mission of the Messiah. Because if you're recruited into his army, his mission is your mission. And guess what? It has everything to do with the poor. Open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Jesus will announce his messianic mission in the words you're about to read. Take a look at this. The Gospel of Luke. You didn't bring a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you, pull it out. You've got to see this for yourself. Let me give you the page number. Page 692 in the pew Bible. I'm going to be in the New International Version. Luke chapter 4. Isn't this something? The Messiah's mission. you recruited by Him. His mission is yours and mine. Let's read it together. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Jesus went to Nazareth. Jesus went to Nazareth where He had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, He went into the synagogue as was His custom. There is no question among scholarship or anybody who reads the Gospels to note that Jesus was a Sabbatarian from the beginning of His life. And it goes all the way to the book of Revelation. So as his custom was, he worshipped on the day he created, by the way, as a pre-incarnate Christ. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up, because this is his hometown. The boys come home. And he stood up to read. And the scroll, verse 17 of the prophet Isaiah, was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place. They didn't say, hey, hey. This is our scripture for today. No, he finds it. He unrolls the scroll, picks the scripture, because he's about to make an announcement. Picks Isaiah 61, where it is written, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He has sent me to proclaim recovery of sight for the blind, to proclaim the release for the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that word for anoint, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me, that word in the Greek is krio, krio. From whence comes the word Christos. Christ is the anointed one. It is the Messiah. It is a stunning claim he makes in front of the home crowd when he announces, I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. Implicit, but stunning. 
And what is the mission of the Messiah? Because if He's recruited you and me, it has to be. It just has to be our mission too. Have you ever heard of Dr. Paul Farmer? Anybody heard of him? So we're in the Dulles International Airport. I wanted to, wanted to find a book a few weeks ago flying over to South Africa. That's a 19-hour flight from Dulles to Johannesburg. Just a very long flight. I didn't want to bring one of my books from home, so I'm looking around in the biography shelves. And I come across this book, Mountains Beyond Mountains. I pick it up, pull it out. The story of Paul Farmer. I've read it. Grew up poor white kid in Louisiana. So poor that his family, his brothers and sisters and mom and dad, live on a tugboat. Own no real estate. He grew up picking fruit. And that was his first contact with Haitians and the Creole language. Smart boy. Ends up enrolling in Duke University. Gets caught up in the heady whirl of academic life. Anthropology. Runs into literature about Haiti. Graduates from Duke. Scrounges around, collects enough money to buy himself a ticket to Port-au-Prince. Goes down there and find, hooks up with a bunch of young American doctors on relief work. One day, with one of those physicians, the paradigm will shift and his life will forever be changed. I want to pick it up in the language of his book. So read it straight from uh, the biography of Paul Farmer. Working as a medical volunteer at the Hôpital St. Croix in Leogane, he got to know a young American doctor. Remembering that doc, Farmer said, he, this, this doc, he loved the Haitians. He was a very thoughtful guy. The man had worked in Haiti for about a year. Now in a few days he's going back to the United States. And I realized, hearing him talk, that something had happened to me already, Farmer said. I wasn't feeling judgmental. Haiti was something he was seeing that he could leave and erase from his mind. And I was thinking, could I do that? He was leaving Haiti. I mean, really leaving it in body and mind. And I realized that I was going to have trouble with that. So he asked this young American doctor, this college grad, 23 years old. He asked him, hey, isn't it going to be hard to leave? Are you kidding? I can't wait. There's no electricity here. It's just brutal here. Yeah, but aren't you worried about not being able to, being able to forget all of this? There's so much disease here. No, the doctor said, I'm an American and I'm going home. Right. Farmer said, me too. But he thought about that conversation all the rest of the day and into the evening. What does it mean, I'm an American? How do people classify themselves? He understood the doctor's position, but he didn't really know his own. The only thing he knew for sure was that he would become a doctor himself. So now, nighttime, here comes the paradigm shift. Later on in the night, in the night a young woman arrived in the hospital, pregnant and in the throes of malaria. Farmer later recalled, she had a very high parasitemia. Parasite count in the blood. Bad malaria, he went on. She went into a coma. And you know, I didn't know the details then. I do now because it's my specialty. She needed a transfusion. And her sister was there. So there was no blood. And the doctor told her sister to go to Port-au-Prince to get her some blood. But he said she would need some money. I had no money, so I ran around the hospital and I rounded up $15 and I gave her the money and she went away. But then she came back and said she didn't have enough for both a tap-tap, a taxi, and the blood. So meanwhile, the patient started having respiratory distress and this pink stuff started coming out of her mouth. And the nurses were saying, it's hopeless. And the other people were saying, we should do a cesarean delivery. And I said, there's got to be some way to get her some blood. 
and her sister was beside herself. She was sobbing and crying. The woman had five kids. The sister said, this is terrible. You can't even get a blood transfusion if you're poor. And then she said, we're all human beings. The words, tu moon se moon, seemed like the answer to the question he had asked himself earlier that day. Was being an American sufficient identity unto itself? She said that again and again. He recalled, we're all human beings. We're all human beings. The woman and her unborn baby died. Paul Farmer eventually flew back to the States, enrolled in Harvard Medical School. And when he graduated, he returned to a little village in the central highlands of Haiti. And there he raised up a dispensary and then a clinic and now a hospital for the dirt poor of that land. He's 50 years old right now. Dr. Paul Farmer has become an infectious disease specialist, renowned the world over, TB, malaria, AIDS, and just five nights ago in the evening news, I saw him interviewed with a generator putting, producing light there in Port-au-Prince. Interviewed on the news. We're all human beings. The young woman cried over and over as she watched her sister die because they didn't have enough money to buy a transfusion. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. So what's that mean for the likes of you and me? Followers of the Messiah that we are. Take out your study guide, will you? Let's brood over this for a few moments. Pull out your study guide. Thank you, ushers. Make sure everybody here gets one. You'll want this study guide. Just hold your hand up. The ushers will get it to you. Keep your hand up in the balcony in the overflow as well. And those of you watching on television, we're delighted to have you. This is a little mini-series. It ends today. The title of the series is taken, taken near, near the end of T.S. Eliot's poem, Dry Salvages. It's taken a line, and you'll see it. You'll see it there on the website, who are only undefeated because we have gone on trying. So you look for that, uh, you look for that, that website. Website, let me get, put the address on the screen for you, www.pmchurch.tv. And you're looking for the series, who are only undefeated because we've gone on trying. This is number three. So this part is entitled, The Mission Young. Final part in this mini-series. Why, why have we three times used the words of T.S. Eliot to be sort of, a, sort of an umbrella over us? I'll tell you why. Because there are some issues in life we must champion no matter how immense the challenge. The young, activated and mobilized in the church, issue number one. Racism in the church, last Sabbath, issue number two. Poverty in the world, today. Of course it's tough. It's uphill the whole way. Take last Sabbath subject. For example, the truth in black and white. I got emails after emails. You can imagine. But the emails from the young, to a man, to a young and old woman, saying, you know what, Pastor? That's exactly the way I feel. I knew you would respond that way. And that's why you are crucial. It's uphill. It's slugging straight uphill. Don't you back down. Don't you back off who are only undefeated because we have gone on trying. So quit never. Quit never. Just go on trying. All right, let's read it again before we plunge into that study guide. Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the words of Jesus. If you have a red-letter Bible, these ought to be bright red. Jesus announcing His messianic mission. His mission is yours, by the way. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. 
Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. So here's the question. Would you jot this down? What is this? What is this mission of the Messiah? Is it a spiritual mission of the heart? Right in the word spiritual. Or is it a physical mission of the hands? Which is it? Is it a mission for the heart, spiritual? Or is it a mission for the hands, physical? I tell you what, you read Luke's Gospel, and I wish you would read it sometime. Absolutely unequivocal, amply clear in Luke that Jesus means both. Spiritual and physical. Watch this. Just turn the page to Luke 6. Just turn the page to Luke's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. This is fascinating. Because when Matthew, when, when Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, it opens with this beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But when Luke gets it, he cuts off in spirit. He said, I don't want to talk about spiritual poor. I want to deal with the physically poor. Notice this. Chapter 6, here's where Luke's Sermon on the Mount begins. Verse 20, looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. How do you know that's physical? Watch the next one, verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now. Matthew says, hunger hunger and thirst after righteousness. No, Luke says, hungry. I'm going to talk about hunger. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Ladies and gentlemen, Luke goes out of his way to make sure we understand that Christ's mission and the mission of all who follow Him is both spiritual and physical. Some of us have focused exclusively on spiritual and we've missed the Messiah's point. It's spiritual and physical. So jot this down, will you? What does this mean? This line, blessed are the poor and hungry. That line can also read, blessed are the Haitians. That's what that line can mean. Blessed are the Haitians. Keep your pen moving. Where according to the CIA website that I checked this last week, 80% of the populace lives below the poverty line. International poverty line. 80%. And keep writing. 54% live in abject poverty. And by the way, you know, don't you, that those numbers are going to spark a whole spike, a whole lot higher when the count comes in from this massive... Killer quake. You know that, don't you? The numbers will be higher. In fact, would you jot this down? I heard this on the news last week. As a result of the catastrophic earthquake, two million more, not total, more Haitians have been made homeless out of a population of 9.1 million. Go figure. Do you know how many homeless there are in the United States? Found this on the web. 672,000 in all of America. Huge land. You've got a half of an island. And there are two million more who are homeless. Blessed are the Haitians. We are all human beings. The woman sobbed. We are all human human beings, aren't we? But since this is an international university, we should note how endemic global poverty is. So keep your pen moving. Ann Carlson gave me a book this last week entitled When Helping Hurts. And in it, I came across these numbers. Jot them down. While the average American lives on more than $90 a day. That's how much you live on. Average. 90 bucks a day. Approximately 1 billion people on this planet live on less than $1 a day. And 2.6 billion, almost one-third of the human race, live on less than $2 a day. Hey, aren't we all human beings? Aren't we all human beings? 
And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He said, Well, do I at least, at least we don't have abject poverty in our nation. Are you serious? Keep your pen moving. Let's really get close to home. According to feedingamerica.org, in 2008, 49.1 million Americans lived in food insecure households. That's a technical term that means living in hunger or fear of starvation. 49.1 million in this country live that way. That would be 32.4 million adults and 16.7 million children go to bed hungry at night. In our country, we are all, we are all human beings. One out of seven Americans sometime this year will go to bed hungry. Now, look, I understand that food insecurity can be chronic, it can be seasonal, it can be temporary. I understand that. But sometime in this year, 49.1 million of them will go to bed hungry in our country. Benton Harbor, 12 miles up the road, Benton Harbor, Michigan, 2008. 2008, 42.6% of the residents had income below the national poverty level. Almost half. Two out of five. Below the national poverty level. But keep writing. Benton Harbor, Michigan, 2008. 19.7% of the same residents had income below 50% of the national poverty level. One out of five residents in the inner city 12 miles up the road from us lives at less than 50% of the national poverty level. You're saying, hey, Dwight, what's the national, national poverty level? According to the Office of Management and Budget, updated with the Consumer Price Index. Here it goes. For, for 2008, family of four, 22000 a year. That's poverty. Family of three, 17000 a year. Family of two, 14000 a year. For a single individual, 11000 a year. 19.7% of them live at half of that. Half of that in Benton Harbor. You're sleeping all right, aren't you? Are you eating okay at the cafeteria? I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, that hits awfully close to home, doesn't it? So what are you doing about it? What are you doing? We're all human beings. The sister cries. And he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor people. To the poor. That was the Messiah's mission. And if you have been recruited by the Messiah or you are thinking about being recruited by the Messiah, i got to warn you, the marching orders are very specific. You will develop a passion for the disenfranchised, for the socially and financially marginalized. You will have to develop a heart for them. You may not have a heart for them right now. That's okay. Get, I want Jesus to walk with me. Is that what you're saying? You let Jesus walk with you long enough, His heart will transmit into your heart and it will beat with the same passion eventually. Don't you worry about it. He'll give you His passion. His mission. My mission. Wow. So what should we do? How are we supposed to live? Let me close with the desire of ages. This classic on the life of Jesus. Let me close with this. You're going to have to fill this in. Many feel that it would be a great privilege to visit the scenes of Christ's life on earth. Oh, I wish I could be there. But we need not go to Nazareth, to Capernaum, or to Bethany in order to walk in the steps of Jesus. We shall find His footprints beside the sickbed any sickbed anywhere on earth, we shall find His footprints in the hovels of 
poverty. Mercy. We shall find His footprints in the crowded alleys of the great city, the inner city. And in every place where there are human hearts in need of consolation, in doing as Jesus did when on earth, we shall walk in His steps, end quote. That's what it means. And the Messiah's mission is your mission and mine. And where are His steps today? You know where Jesus... He sends His apologies, by the way. Couldn't be here today because He's in Haiti today. What's He doing in Haiti? I'll tell you what He's doing. He's stroking the brow of an orphan child right now. Can't be interrupted. He's in Haiti today, standing in the hot sun, dispensing bottled water. He's in Haiti right now, hovering over fractured victims lining the grassy floor of another field hospital. What do we just read? We shall find His footprints beside the sickbed in the hovels of poverty, in the crowded alleys of the city, Port-au-Prince included. He's in Benton Harbor, by the way. Sends his apologies. Can't be with us today because he's in Benton Harbor. Going door to door with a story hour invitation. With an invitation, can we pray with you? Do you have anything we can pray for you? Volunteering for supervising 100 children every Sabbath in Kids Zone in the Harbor of Hope Church. We have planted, we have planted in that inner city. That's where he is. He sends his apologies. Breaking up a fight between two angry teens. That's where he is right now. Getting up early to cook the Sabbath dinner for all those children and parents and volunteers who show up today. Got up early. That's where Jesus is. That's where you find him. We shall find his footprints. What do we read? In every place where there are human hearts in need of consolation. So here's the big question. I mean, if that's true, what are we supposed to do? When I follow Jesus, how should I live? I can't believe how simple the answer is. Deceptively, amazingly simple. Take a look at this. This is a, from the same uh, a Desire of Ages quotation. You see it in your study guide. All may find something to do. Surprisingly uncomplicated. Now, hold on. Watch this. Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor with you. He did say that. Now, look. At, here's the question. Were our condition and the poor's theirs to be reversed so that you're poor and they're rich and they're coming to you? Were our condition and theirs to be reversed, what would we desire them to do for us? All this, so far as lies in our power, we are under the most solemn obligation to do for them. Christ's rule of life, by which every one of us must stand or fall in the judgment, is the golden rule. Whatever you want others to do to you, you do it to them. End quote. You know what that means? That means that all I need to do right now is just switch it. Okay, so I'm the poor one. I'm in that run-down, leaky-roofed shack in Benton Harbor. And that one that's in there is the rich one. So that one, what do I want that one to do to me? It's hands down. It's a no-brainer. You know what I wish you would do? I wish you'd come into my house. I wish you would ask me, is there anything I can pray for? And not just ask me that, but really mean it. And not just mean it, but help me find some more food. I wish, if I were a kid in Benton Harbor, I would wish you would put your arm around me as a big brother or a big sister. Whenever I'm with you and miss me when I'm not with you. That's what I would wish. Wouldn't you want that? I just want you to love me. I mean, I'm a human being too. Don't I look like a human being? We're all human beings. Do something to help me. Give me a ride. Give me a ride to the hospital. Give me a ride to the prison. I want to visit. I got, I got family in jail. Give me a ride, will you? I just wish you'd. Know that I'm, I'm human too. 
were the tables and conditions to be reversed. What would you, the poor one, want them, the fortunate and blessed ones, to do for you? Whatever that is, Jesus says, figure it out. You do the same to them. You don't need a Ph.D. in poverty. You need a heart for Jesus, that's all. Two arms that are willing to love in His place. Two feet that are willing to walk in His footsteps. And the young woman sobbed. We're all human beings. And He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and He has anointed me to preach the good news to those who are poor. And so like Jesus... And Dr. Paul Farmer, who, by the way, both began as young adults with a compassion for the poor. Both started out young. Would you be willing to embrace the needs of the poor and sign up? You know what? I'm not taking a big risk by asking that question because I did a little bit of research and discovered that the UCLA, okay, University of California, L.A., has been conducting for years now a freshman survey. Entry survey. Guess what? In answer to the question, in answer to the statement, it is essential or very important to help others who are in difficulty, their last survey that I saw, 70% of the incoming university students says, yep, that is important for me. To help those who are less fortunate than me. It's the highest return they've ever had for that question. So I'm preaching to the choir. Seventy percent of you are already, your heart is beating and saying, sign me up. I will do it. Oh, and by the way, I was with you in chapel on Thursday. I heard Dr. Dwayne McBride right here tell us that if you as a young adult will volunteer in service-oriented work, you will cut your chances of being involved in risk behavior by 50%. So it's not only a win-win for Jesus when you enlist in His army, it's a win-win for you, boy, and you, girl. Win-win. So, what can you do? There are a hundred hundred ways you can answer Jesus' call. I'm going to give you nine of them right now. Close with these nine. They're on your study guide. Number one, get on the Benton Harbor buses at 3 o'clock this afternoon. They'll be right in front of Lampson Hall. Get on that bus. Help us in the inner city. Number two, call Chaplain Karen Toms. There's her phone number. And volunteer to join one of the Benton Harbor Outreach Ministries. You get a voicemail, just leave a message. Call me back. Number three, call Pastor Walter Rogers. By the way, Karen Toms and Walter Rogers are both young adults. He's our young adult leader, pastor, up at Benton Harbor. Call Pastor Walter Rogers. There's his number and volunteer to help at Kids Zone and Family Church at Harbor of Hope on Sabbath. By the way, number four, call him if you're willing to visit the children's homes on Friday. Talking to Walter this week, he said, Hey, Dwight, I'm telling you, my biggest need, our biggest need right now is for people who could give a Friday afternoon. You you don't have to give it every week, but give a Friday afternoon and help us call on the homes to get them ready for tomorrow for the Sabbath. Call him up. Number five, call him if you're willing to drive a bus or supervise a bus. That means sitting on the bus the whole time. There'll be a special place in heaven for you. I, 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 I know. All right, so call him if you're willing to do that. Number six, call Walter if you're a cook willing to be on a dinner, dinner team once a month. 
Number seven, call Campus Ministries. That's Karen Tom's number. Call Campus Ministries to join the Haiti Relief Team during spring break. Number eight, call Neighbor to Neighbor Community Center in Bering Springs right here in town and volunteer to serve the poor who come for clothing and assistance. Finally, number nine, transfer your membership from this church, Pioneer, to Harbor of Hope and shift your paradigm to worshiping and ministering as Jesus did. We'll miss you, but we'll be glad with you. You see the point about this? There's nothing to tear out and turn in. We're not doing that. No way. You're going to do the work. You're going to take the initiative. Call that phone number. If you're serious, call the number. We'll do the rest. But tell somebody, tell Jesus and somebody else that you'd like to help. You don't have to go every week. You can go when you can. Just go. Garen Dent, his mom. Garen Dent's village hardware in town. That's his store. Okay, but he's volunteering. Sitting here in First Church, and then he goes up there and volunteers in, uh, during Second Church up in Benton Harbor. His mom, Deidre, she was struggling over whether to get involved in our Benton Harbor ministry. She's, she's worried about security. She's worried about being in an inner city. She keeps putting off making this commitment. And finally, Garen came to his mom. He said, hey, mom. He told her something that shifted the paradigm. He said, hey, you know what, mom? You need to look at it this way. Think of this. You get to be a missionary in a third world condition and sleep in your own bed every night. What's wrong with that? Huh? She signed up and has been a helpful volunteer ever, ever since. Hey, listen. Jesus was a missionary to our third world poverty in this nation in Haiti and the entire planet. He was a missionary. If you follow Him, don't you suppose... It's time for you and me to become missionaries right here at home, right now.